You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. How's everybody doing? Hope you had a spooktastic Halloween, uh, as this show is airing on the 1st of November. Uh, all the little ghosts and goblins. Uh, hopefully they had a safe trick-or-treating out there. And uh, we're here looking at some of the other scary things going on, especially when we're talking about politics, which is what we do here on Fired Up. So let's get right into it, okay? Let's start off, as we always do, with our rundown of where we stand with the COVID virus here in the United States. We're currently standing at 45.9 million cases have been reported. 745,700 plus people have uh, succumbed to the disease. And we have 418,200,000 plus vaccination doses have been administered, which uh, equals out to 57.9 of the population being fully vaccinated and 67% having received at least one dose. And COVID news that's uh, come along the pipe this week, uh, we've learned that the that the FDA has given approval to uh, vaccine doses for children ages 5 to 12. So that's a great thing for uh, those parents looking to get their children back into physical school. And uh, there are expected to be about 28 million uh, children that need to be vac- vaccinated. And hopefully that occurs and we get that going and our young ones can get back into school and face-to-face school, that is. And uh, that will help them with their learning and their socialization. And also, not to say the least, we'll get them out of mom and dad's hair so that mom and dad can go back to doing normal mom and dad things when the kids are in school. So we look forward to seeing... um, that vaccine move forward. The one remaining step is that the Centers for Disease Control, or the CDC, will need to issue uh, final authorization for administration of the vaccine. That's expected to occur uh, tomorrow when the CDC has its advisory panel meeting. So we should be seeing a rollout of vaccine uh, to children ages 5 to 12 uh, within roughly about a week or so. The government has already said they have staged up some 15 million doses already and uh, with more to come. So good news. Uh, We continue to see reductions in the hospitalization rate uh, due to COVID, although the overwhelming majority of those that are being hospitalized still remain the unvaccinated and people who uh, choose not to follow the safety mandates that have been coming from the medical and scientific community for about the last two years now. And uh, we'll continue to hope that people will see the light and realize that the best protection method you can get is to be vaccinated and is to follow the guidelines uh, that the scientific and medical community have issued out for us. So uh, that's you know a call to action, a standing call, as we've been talking about now for uh, literally two years. And, you know, let's go out, let's get our vaccinations, folks. It's the best way to keep yourselves, your family, your community, and uh, get our country 
uh, to turn the corner on this pandemic once and for all. All right. So with that being said, we're going to uh, move into our show and I want to spend a good portion of the show today talking about the infrastructure bills, uh, both of them. Uh, This past week, President Biden met with the Democratic coalition and uh, the the outtake from that meeting was that a framework for the uh, scaled back second portion of the infrastructure plan uh, has been arrived at. Uh, the final details are being written into the bills and hopefully these will go to uh, the president's desk for signature in short order. Uh, I'm going to talk about you know, that whole process and what we've experienced with it as well. But I wanted to start with just kind of a review of, you know, what the key takeaways are from the two uh, bills that have been uh, now framed out. And it, the, the first bill has been approved in the Senate and is awaiting approval in the House. And uh, what seems to be holding that in place is that the Progressive Caucus of the Democratic Party uh, wants to see both of these bills ready to go to the White House uh, at the same time. And, you know, we, we've talked about on this show that, you know, in, in some circles that is seen as a, a strategic, um, how should I say, uh, a, a strategic faux pas on the part of the administration uh, in that, they have the votes in both the Senate and the House to have passed the first uh, infrastructure bill through reconciliation and you know, allowed the Progressive Caucus and some uh, senators who had some issues with the second bill to hold up that process. Um, so let, let's go through the bills and then we'll, we'll talk about the strategy and tactics that we have seen play out uh, with these two bills. So, as we said, um, initially, uh, the, the first infrastructure bill, which was a hard infrastructure bill, uh, came through at $1.2 trillion, um, and it was passed uh, in the Senate uh, with a bipartisan vote uh, and went on to the House, where it has been held up, as I said, by progressives who have insisted that the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better agenda, uh, otherwise known as the Social Infrastructure Bill, uh, be passed as well, and both bills go to the president's desk simultaneously. Um, So on October 28th, uh, President Biden came out from his meeting with the Democrats and announced a framework for the second bill in the series, which was substantially scaled back and now sits at about $1.85 trillion down from the three and a half that uh, originally had been asked for. So, you know, there were some things which had uh, been requested that have been pulled back, and we're going to look at those in a moment. So one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, this second plan is going to support require the support of all 50 Democratic senators, uh, as there are no Republicans expected to support the legislation. Uh, The framework includes $1.75 trillion of social infrastructure funding 
an additional $100 billion in immigration spending contingent upon affirmative ruling by the Senate parliamentarian. That would bring the total up to the aforementioned $1.85 trillion. So when you add that to the 1.2 uh, bipartisan infrastructure legislation, uh, the resulting spending is just over $3 trillion uh, supporting President Biden's agenda. And of course, all this assumes that the Democrats will agree on the scaled-down version, but at least the early indications are that uh, all Democrats are on board. Hopefully, they can lock that all in and get it you know, written up and you know get it forwarded to the president for his signature so let's break these down all right the 1.2 trillion dollar bipartisan bill the first one that has been uh, that was passed uh, it includes 110 billion dollars for roads and bridges uh, which you know in, in addition to construction repair the funding also helps pay for transportation research at universities funding for Puerto Rico's highways, and congestion relief in American cities. So all of you who are stuck in daily commuter traffic will appreciate that one. $66 billion are going to the railroads, and this funding includes upgrades and maintenance of America's passenger rail system and freight rail safety, but it does not include anything on progress for high-speed rail uh, in the United States. Um, the freight rail safety component is much needed. Uh, over the last couple of years, uh, we have seen some very severe um, you know, accidents with regard to not only freight trains, but also passenger rails. There was one here you know, in Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, not too long ago, um, that you know, had several people who were killed and many people who were injured, uh, all because the braking system on the railroad tracks and the controls on the train didn't function as they were supposed to. So hopefully this bill would address those deficiencies. Another $65 billion would go for the power grid. This bill would fund updates to power lines and cables as well as provide money to prevent hacking of the power grid. Uh, and there's also in that uh, some funding for clean energy as well. Uh, an additional $65 billion would go for broadband, including funding to expand broadband in rural areas and in low-income communities. Approximately, approximately $14 billion of the total would help reduce Internet bills for low-income citizens. Uh, and as we've just come through you know, uh, a year and a half or more of you know, schooling at home, where people didn't have reliable or high-speed access and were relegated to going to fast food restaurant parking lots and other locations just to connect to uh, capable internet so they could do their homework. Uh, that will be a much needed boost for a broad swath of the country, especially in rural areas and remote areas where the traditional cable network has not gotten out that far. Uh, $55 billion of the, the bipartisan bill will go for water infrastructure, which includes $15 billion for lead pipe replacement, $10 billion for chemical cleanup, and money to provide clean drinking water to tribal communities. And as we've seen in the news over the last uh, couple of years, 
um, with the situation in Flint, Michigan and, and other parts of Michigan um, in North New Jersey and so forth. Uh, lead pipe abatement is something that is desperately needed in many areas of our country. $47 billion of the bill will go for cybersecurity and climate change. Uh, the so-called Resilience Fund will protect infrastructure from cybersecurity attacks and address flooding, wildfires, coastal erosion, and droughts, along with other extreme weather events. $39 billion will go for public transit. Funding here provides for upgrades to public transit systems nationwide. Uh, the allocation also includes money to create new bus routes and help make public transit more accessible to seniors and disabled Americans. Uh, $25 billion of the bill will go to our airports. This allocation will provide funding for major upgrades and expansions at U.S. airports. Air traffic control towers and systems would receive $5 billion of the total for upgrades. And, you know, we've, we've seen stories in the news over the past 10 years about the problems with the air traffic system and how overloaded and needed uh, for upgrading it is. So this is a much needed boost for that area. $21 billion of the money will go for the environment. Uh, money is used to clean up super, Superfund and Brownfield sites, abandoned mines, and old oil and gas wells. $17 billion of this will go to ports. Half of the funds in this category would go to the Army Corps of Engineers for port infrastructure. Additional funds would go to the Coast Guard, ferry terminals, and reduction of truck emissions at ports. So, you know, the, the infrastructure portion of this um, is something that we're seeing right now is desperately needed. There have been several stories in the news recently about the delay in the supply chain with, you know, hundreds of ships stuck offshore waiting to get into ports because there are not enough uh, truck drivers to move those containers from the ports and out into distribution. So, so you know, needed equipment, supplies, and materials are just standing in station outside of our, our ports on both coasts. $11 billion of this money would go for safety. Appropriations here to address highway, pedestrian, pipeline, and other safety areas with highway safety getting the bulk of the funding. $8 billion for western water infrastructure. And if you live out in, in the west coast or, or in the western uh, half or western third of the country, uh, this is a key, key issue for you out there as we have seen Drought conditions get much worse over the last uh, three or four years. And, you know, places like Lake Mead and other necessary water supplies has, you know, been drying up and, you know, is, is threatened to be non-existent unless we address that. So $8 billion of this bill will go uh, toward that. Uh, there's $7.5 billion in the bill for electric vehicle charging stations. Um, you know, the, the idea here is the administration wants to build significantly more charging stations for electric vehicles across the nation. And as we've seen, the growth in popularity, uh, availability, and variety of elect electric vehicles, uh, this infrastructure is going to be much needed uh, if the, that segment of the automotive market is going to continue to grow 
and expand and help us reduce our carbon footprint. And 700, I'm sorry, $7.5 billion for electric school buses with an emphasis on bus fleet replacement in low income rural and tribal communities. So, you know, the, the idea here is to expand the efforts we already have on zero emission buses out into areas where it has not yet uh, become a reality. So that's a summary of what's in the um, $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. Now let's take a look at the second component of that, the $1.85 trillion uh, Democratic proposal that, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the segment, uh, was in discussion with President Biden and the Democratic coalition uh, just this past week. So what do we have in this bill? And we start with $400 billion for child care and universal preschool. Uh, this plan uh, is intended to save American families more than half of their spending on child care but providing, by providing two years of free preschool for every three and four-year-old in America and additional funding for child care. $150 billion would go to home care. Uh, to expand home care for seniors and the disabled. Uh, $200 billion would go for uh, expansions of the child tax credit and earned income credit. Uh, the proposal extends the child tax credit for one year and provides additional funds to extend the earned income tax credit, uh, two parts of the tax code that benefit families greatly in this country. $150 billion for home care which would expand access to high-quality home care for older Americans and people with disabilities. $550 billion for clean energy and climate. The plan proposes cutting greenhouse gas pollution by over a gigaton in, by 2030, reducing consumer energy costs, helping to create more clean air and water, and creating hundreds and thousands of new jobs in support of these industries. $130 billion in Affordable Care Act credits. Uh, this money is targeted to expand affordable health care coverage, reduce premiums for more than 9 million Americans, and deliver health care to uninsured people in states that are not enrolled in expanded Medicaid coverage. $35 billion would go to Medicare hearing coverage. Uh, while you know, initially the proposal was for dental, vision, and hearing, uh, the only uh, element of that to make the cut was hearing, and Medicare recipients will have coverage for hearing aids and hearing tests. $150 billion of the bill will go to housing. Uh, here the plan is going to address and invest in affordable housing, including construction and rehabilitation of homes, as well as investments in rental assistance and housing vouchers. $40 billion uh, for higher ed and workforce. Uh, this portion of the legislation will increase Pell Grants and provide post-high school education opportunities, including through apprenticeship programs for underserved communities. $90 billion for equity and other investments. And what this means is that spending in this area will be designed to achieve equity 
through investments in material, I'm sorry, maternal health, community violence interventions, and nutrition, according to a statement from the White House. $100 billion of this money will go to immigration. Uh, this is part of the framework, but also separate since it requires a ruling by the Senate parliamentarian. This would constitute an investment to reform the immigration system, reduce backlogs, expand legal representation, and make border processing more efficient and humane. Uh, a, a portion of the bill uh, addresses the corporate alternative minimum tax. A 15% minimum tax on companies whose financial statements show at least $1 billion in profit as proposed by Senators Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts and Angus King of Maine and Ron Wyden of Oregon uh, has been added uh, to the current Build Back legislation to help fund it. So in, in, this, in this pack, uh, let's take a look at some things that got left on the cutting room floor. First and foremost, uh, paid family leave. The Democratic proposal initially was for 12 weeks of guaranteed paid family and medical leave. Uh, in the process of negotiation, it was ultimately scaled back to four weeks. Uh, ultimately, though, no paid leave made it into uh, the framework in the second phase of the infrastructure package. As I said, dental and vision benefits under Medicare were cut out. Um, Medicare drug pricing, the ability of Medicare to negotiate drug prices directly with pharmaceutical companies was also cut out from the final framework. And free community college, expansion of Pell Grants and, and apprenticeship, excuse me, training remains, but free community college uh, tuition for two years uh, has been taken out. Um, under the, the or onto the cutting room floor also fell the billionaire's income tax. Uh, the funding plan or this funding plan, which would have taxed the unrealized gains of certain assets of around 700 of the richest taxpayers in the country and, and would help fund the legislation has been removed. So, so that is an overview of the two packages. Uh, realize that the the bills themselves, the first uh, bill, the bipartisan bill, is uh, just shy of 3,000 pages long, and the projected length of the second bill is probably going to be an additional 2,000 pages. So once the bills are out there, uh, they'll be available to the public. You can go online to uh, the whitehouse.gov website or the house.gov or senate.gov websites and see the, the uh, language of the bills uh, and, you know, curl up for a, a long winter's night and you know, read them for yourselves. Um, emphasis there on long winter's night. Uh, it's 5,000 pages. Um, but there are, are numerous summaries that have been uh, released to the public through the press and social media. Uh, I encourage you to go out and you know read the summaries from different sources from various sources so that you get a fuller picture of what the infrastructure proposals are going to contain 
Um, don't just rely on single source, just like any news that that we get. You want to get a, a wide variety of news, compare them all together, and you will find that the truth lies somewhere in the middle of that circle. So, you know, it, it, it's clear that the, the ideas of the infrastructure bill have changed drastically uh, over the last, uh, you know, six or eight months. Um, clearly, there's been politics played. Um, clearly, you know, the, the agendas of a few uh, House and Senate members have, you know, have slowed down or roadblocked much of the progress that was initially expanded into these bills. However, that's not the entire story. Um, we'll, we'll take a quick break here, but when I come back, we're going to talk about how this process worked or didn't work and, you know, in what, in my opinion, are the flaws in the strategy on both the Democratic and Republican sides uh, of this issue. So you're listening to Fired Up Radio right here on WJMSRadio.com. We'll be right back after this very short break. And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. And uh, we are discussing uh, the, we just finished our discussion, or at least an intro to it, of the two infrastructure bills that are now in the hands of the House and Senate for final versions heading 
to uh, get to the president's desk for his signature. Um, but I wanted to uh, sort of step out of that context for a bit and kind of talk a little bit about where we find ourselves uh, as we enter the final two months of um, no, of 2021 here. Um, first of all, as this show is airing on the 1st of November, uh, just a reminder that there are a host of state and local elections which will be occurring uh, probably wherever you're listening from uh, tomorrow, November 2nd. And, you know, a reminder that uh, elections aren't just something that happens every two years with national midterms and you know national uh, presidential elections. There are elections that occur throughout the year all over the country that are equally important. And we're going to talk about why those elections are so important uh, as we go through in, in this segment here. But uh, what I wanted to say is, you know, we, as we, again, uh, work toward wrapping up 2021 going into 2022, which will be a hectic election year, there's no doubt of that. Um, but, you know, a as a country, we find ourselves coming to uh, kind of a crossroads, um, you know, with the activities of just the past decade with regard to race, abortion, voting, and access to wealth, uh, we've pulled, uh, we, we have seen it pull the curtain back on the formerly secret war that has been occurring on the poor and middle class in this country. And, you know, both of the two major parties uh, have culpability in this. Uh, the Democrats um, have all but... Um, uh, I, I would say abandoned their uh, concern for the political center of this country in everything except uh, rhetoric, um, infrastructure bill notwithstanding. Uh, for the most part, uh, the the two parties have fallen into this mindset of you know getting reelected and personalities and and so forth and really have moved away from you know the core of the american public uh, that is you know the the poor the middle class you know and and so forth and um you know it should be noted republicans have also moved away from their portion uh, or the portion of their base that has you know the the low-income poor and middle-class populations in favor of this quote radical right close quote agenda uh, that seems to be uh, hell-bent on empowering hate and injustice and you know feeding the wealth of the upper you know one percent or fraction of one percent in this country um, you know, if if this is going to be how the political game uh, is going to continue, and particularly if this this game continues for you know just a few months more, uh, it's highly likely, uh, and you know many 
uh, pundits out there are predicting this as well, that the Democrats um, could very well lose their majorities in both the House and Senate. Uh, and, you know, with, you know, with the Republicans, should they win the day in the midterms uh, a year from now, uh, it is likely that um, they could uh, also retake the White House as well. Um, you know, it, it will buoy their spirit to have these midterm victories, uh, will consolidate their ownership of the House and Senate, and, you know, by extension, that also means that their, their hold on state governments uh, is also likely to expand and deepen. Uh, if, if this is to be the truth, um, you know, the, the Democrats could face quite a few years being in the minority uh, in this country, the minority party you know, in this country. Um, but, you know, while the, the Republicans uh, look to, to further their, their control at the national level, we should not ignore and, and I emphasize this, we should not ignore uh, what is happening at the state level with, with regard to the Republican efforts to uh, consolidate power in areas they already hold, to deepen that hold through uh, various uh, legal and legislative means, and we'll talk a little bit about that, and you know, basically to continue on what is now becoming uh, an almost 60-year uh, pursuit of their Southern strategy. So, you know, it, it, you need to think about it this way. The current state of, you know, Republican politics is not something that, you know, popped up out of the ground uh, with the election of Donald Trump, uh, you know, in, in the prior administration. The, this goes back to a, a deliberate strategy that was set in place in the 1960s, um, was, was uh, strengthened under uh, Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon, and continues to be their operating strategy at the state level, uh, as we are now seeing with the uh, the redistricting efforts going on and the levels of Republican and Democratic gerrymandering that are that's occurring in this country. We spoke last week about uh, plans in the state of Illinois, which is a Democratic state, a blue state, that look uh, a whole lot like what's been going on in Republican states in this country. So just just a reminder that you know, the game of politics is one that both sides are playing. Um, however, as I said just a, a few seconds ago, both sides equally seem to be on a path that leads them away from the, the poor, the middle class, and the working class in this country, in this country and also uh, seem to... Uh, move them away from the more progressive and moderate elements in their party 
as they work more and more to consolidate their power uh, to the extreme left and the extreme right uh, of the political spectrum. Uh, as we've talked about on this show, keep in mind that independents, those who are not aligned with either of the two major parties, outnumber the, the combined numbers of the Democrat and Republican parties uh, by nearly two to one. And, you know, those you know, independent, progressive, moderate voters, whatever you want to call them, uh, represent what could be the real political power in this country if they uh, so choose to mobilize that effort uh, to a greater extent than they have in the past. Uh, one of the things that is most encouraging is that we see uh, some uh, element of that motivation happening, uh, both as a result of the four years of the Trump administration and the things that uh, they did to disenfranchise so many Americans, as well as uh, the seeming uh, uh, falling short of the Biden administration with getting you know, their admittedly ambitious uh, agenda moving forward, uh, we see a lot more pushback coming from the progressive arms of both parties uh, against you know, the, the political mainstream uh, that's been going on in this country. And you know, then that, that isn't entirely a bad thing. However, uh, this, this opposition to mainstream political agendas uh, needs to go beyond just uh, a protest level uh, effort and some form of actionable uh, creation needs to occur. And, you know, as we've, we've discussed in prior shows, uh, one of the things is that even without creating a standalone third party, which is a stated objective of many of the groups that I've referenced in the past, um, that is a very long-term prospect. Uh, it could likely take, uh, you know, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years for a third party to accrue enough power to, you know, to, to wield uh, or to wrestle uh, control of the, the national political mechanism away from either Democrats or Republicans. Um, however, within the existing parties, these groups are represented, you know, and, and we talked about this on last week's show. Uh, so there is a mechanism whereby, you know, these groups could band together, could form a, a coalition, and through the process of, uh, you know, the, the, the House and Senate voting procedures, uh, achieve many of the objectives that the progressive and moderate uh, segments of both parties seek to to get a hold of. Now, I'm not saying you know that you know this is some Pollyanna uh, wave a magic wand solution. Uh, if if this process begins to go forward, it is definitely going to run into you know significant resistance. Uh, from both parties, 
uh, perhaps more so the Republican Party than the Democratic Party, as a lot of the progressive ideas uh, are further away from the right than, than they are further away from the left uh, as we look at political alignment. But, you know, it still represents a good first step toward, you know, balancing out the, the actions of our federal government to be more reflective of what this country really looks like. Uh, it, it is, this country is constructed of, you know, people who generally affiliate with the Democrats uh, and have a uh, more left-leaning uh, agenda and scope and people who affiliate with the Republicans and have a more um, right-wing and conservative approach. Uh, but the, the people in the middle represent the you know, overwhelming majority of Americans who you know, don't fall into either of those categories and could you know, ostensibly be that voice for what has been you know, renamed the, the new silent majority in this country. Uh, it, it is something that is worth having, you know, deeper and broader discussions, both at the federal elected official level as well as our state and local uh, elected official levels. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to use that as a segue into talking about, you know, state politics and local politics. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, the Republicans have been on a 60-year sh- strategy called the Southern Strategy uh, to consolidate power at the state and local level uh, as a pipeline for moving power into the federal level uh, up from the states. And you know we've seen this you know in in the last few election cycles how you know former state senators and state Congress people, uh, governors and mayors and, and so forth have, you know, aspired to and achieved uh, national political office uh, at, by way of building on that support they have at the local level. So, you know, we need to be uh, always vigilant of the federal elected officials of our federal government, but we can't just be monofocused at the federal level without being at least as equally focused at the state level because the the way this country is constructed ladies and gentlemen is while the federal government does have power right it has power over national strategies national efforts uh the the national direction of the country the real power in governing this country is actually wielded by the states and that's by design the founders determined that such things for example as voting which is absolutely critical to the the success of this experiment called america uh, that that power is uh, resident at the state level the states control their voting processes. The federal government does not dictate policy on how uh, elections are run, how candidates run for office, how votes are held, how they are counted. 
all of that is handled at the state level. Now, the federal government can exercise some restraints and put some guardrails in place, such as the Voting Rights Amendment of 1965 and the, um, the, the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act bill that is currently uh, stalled in Congress, uh, as well as other legislation that has been uh, pitched and held up at the federal level, which would set some guidelines under which the states would run their elections. It wouldn't tell them how votes are to be cast, but it would make sure that the states follow a level playing field of uh, characteristics of the vote so that every American citizen uh, is able and can exercise their right to vote. That is the foundational element of our democracy is that every citizen has one person, one vote, and that right to vote is crucial to everything we want to get done, whether it's you know school and education, policies and procedures, whether it is uh, state and local taxation, whether it is infrastructure in the state, whether it is how state governments are run, you know, all of these things are not handed down from the federal to the state. They are created in the states and used as the support structure for the federal government operation. And that's why it is important that we stay focused, you know, tightly on the federal, but that we don't take our eye off of what's going on in our states. And one of the things, you know, we, we talk about in this show is we look at how those state policies are impacting the operation and the thinking at the federal level, whether it's abortion rights, whether it's voting rights, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, climate change. All of these things have their genesis at the state level and then rise up to be addressed at the federal level, and it's not the other way around. Even though it may look that way, a lot of this, this energy uh, is pushed upward from the states to the federal. So, you know, as important as it is to be focused on the national elections, you know, we're, we're about to go into the midterm election feeding frenzy over the next 14 months. Uh, it is equally important to recognize that tomorrow you have the opportunity to vote for your local school boards, for your local judges, county commissioners, mayors, uh, city council members, you know, all of these, uh, these boards and committees that run your state day to day. All right. So keep in mind that, again, while powerful, the federal government does not have a huge impact on your day-to-day -day lives. Your state and local governments have much more control over how your daily life works in the state that you live in than the federal government does. All right. So, you know, think, think about that. Um, as I said, uh, tomorrow in, in a lot of areas around the country, 
um, is an election day, please get out and, and vote locally. If you need information on what's going on, you know, where you live, you can go to ballotpedia.org uh, and you can search out uh, what elections are going on in your state. They have candidate backgrounds. They have referendum and, and issue uh, items described. So you can get educated on what you need to know uh, to go out tomorrow and vote in your state and local elections. And please do that. Um, you know, that is where the, the source of the power that the federal government has, that's where it comes from. So, you know, it, it, it's an ongoing thing. It's something we've talked about on this show uh, frequently, and we will, we will continue to talk about it. Um, related, and, and as I mentioned, about redistricting, um, the Illinois Democratic uh, administration and leadership has uh, passed a redistricting uh, map uh, this past Friday that, as it says in this article I found on Politico, uh, likely secures Democrats' control of 14 of the state's 17 congressional districts. But it also uh, condemned one uh, freshman representative to you know what what's probably an uncomfortable fate in that she will have to face um, a longtime Democrat opponent uh, because of the way the new district map is drawn. And this happens frequently in redistricting. Um, two senators or, or two Congress people who had adjacent districts under the old map, when the map gets redrawn, in many cases, portions of that district are merged with the other. The, the shape and area that it covers are redrawn, and you end up having to have runoff elections between two, uh, two Democrat or two Republican candidates who occupy the same area of real estate within their state. Um, it, it is an unfortunate uh, uh, side effect of gerrymandering that sometimes uh, is used by the, the party in power in the state to consolidate more power because essentially you can you know, create a new district that encompasses one representative where prior to that you had two. So in areas in particular where states lose uh, a number of seats, you know, one or two seats in the House of Representatives in Washington because of the census, the gerrymandering process is just the way that those new seats are reapportioned uh, across the state. So it, it is something to pay attention to. Also keep in mind that, as we've said on the show, that redistricting happens every 10 years the results are set in stone for 10 years until the next census. So whatever changes happen to your congressional representation, it is, it is in place for 10 years. So you know, it, it, it is something that 
we as citizens need to be concerned about. Some states in the country have recognized that partisan gerrymandering, regardless of the political party, is a problem and have addressed it by creating nonpartisan district commissions whose job it is to draw new district lines based on the census guidelines every 10 years that are you know, more fair, more evenly distributed, and better represent the population of the state as a whole, rather than just looking to see how many, you know, red districts or how many blue districts we can create, you know, out of that state pie. So, you know, it, it is it is part and parcel of, you know, one of the things we need to pay attention to. There is legislation, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and you know the there's another voting uh, bill that is stalled in Washington D.C. that would call for partisan gerrymandering to be eliminated and replaced nationwide with nonpartisan commissions. You know, so the, the idea of partisanship plays many different levels. We have seen in recent voting legislation out of Georgia and out of Texas, um, out of uh, Louisiana, Utah, and several other states where the people who count the votes are no longer nonpartisan appointees to a commission. They would be appointed by whichever the governing power is in the state. So you know, election votes would be counted in red states by all Republicans. Guess which way that could lean. So something else to keep in mind, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep discussing this in the coming weeks, and we'll definitely be revisiting this as in the run-up to the midterms uh, next November. So just something to be aware of. Finally, um, one other thing, just to sort of tease out, um, there are some big things coming with WJMS Radio. Uh, if you haven't already, please go to the WJMSRadio.com website. Um, mark it as a, a bookmark on your system. Uh, like it and you know, sign up to get updates. Sign up for the newsletter. Uh, there's going to be some really, really exciting stuff coming as we move into the new year. That's going to wrap it up for this week's show. As always, thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate it. Please make sure you stay safe, You know, get vaccinated, follow the medical and scientific guidelines. Make sure that you're keeping yourself and your family uh, safe uh, through the pandemic. Um, this is Steve. You're listening to Fire It Up. Each week, every Monday here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. Take care, everyone, and I will talk to you again in seven days.
If you hear this message, wherever you stand, I'm calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation that can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're 